0: Namaste,
1: motherfuckers. Welcome to Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. The podcast where the life-changing stuff happens. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, this episode is called A Little Bit of Morning, and today's theme is music. Just a very quick thing before we get into it. If you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast on your favorite podcast app, then please do. And while you're there, why not rate, review and recommend us? It really does help us out a lot. And one other quick thing, if you're listening to this on the day it comes out, which is the 1st of June, 2023, you'll hear us talking in the chat about me appearing on Countdown's Dictionary Corner, which I absolutely loved. And today is the very, last of my five episodes on the show. Hopefully not last ever, but last of this time. So check it out on Channel 4, and of course all the episodes will live on on Channel 4's on-demand service for some time to come. Right, that is more than enough self-promotion. Let's get into the episode, and the theme is music. US presenter Bill Nye, N-Y-E, not to be confused with British actor Bill Nye, famously said, Wagner's music is better than it sounds. Inside one of London's only lighthouses, maybe you didn't even know we have lighthouses, a thousand-year-long piece of music has been playing since the year 2000. It will finish on New Year's Eve 2,999. Is that how we'll say that? I guess it is. And it's called Long Player, good name, and you can hear it in the lighthouse at the Trinity Boy Wharf one's strongest music related memories are apparently formed around the age of 40. I guess that explains why I secretly like Easy Lover by Phil Collins. The phrase often a bridesmaid but never a bride was popularized by a Listerine mouthwash campaign to describe women with bad breath quoting an earlier musical song L.M. Montgomery's Hand of the Island. And in 1974, the US National Book Awards ceremony was interrupted by a naked streaker, I think they are usually naked, running through the hall and shouting, read books, read books. That's got absolutely nothing to do with music, but what a fact.
0: What I might do is put this uh, little microphone in and then see if it does it.
1: That's today's guest, Mark Steele fun fact for you from my time at MTV and VH1, in the 2006 fundraiser that VH1 held for Hurricane Katrina, one donor very generously gave $35,000 in return for an hour of 99 red balloons being played back to back, which of course the channel honoured. During the rap in Hamilton, Guns and Ships, Lafayette averages 6.3 words a second, making it the fastest paced song in musical theatre. As part of its response to Covid, gyms in Seoul were banned from playing music with a temper higher than 120 beats per minute. That was so that people wouldn't breathe too fast and spray sweat. This meant that Gangnam Style, at 132 beats per minute, was officially banned. And finally, the last words Abraham Lincoln would have heard before being assassinated in the theatre came from on stage, and they were, You suck-dologising old
0: man-trap. Gosh. Has that, has that come up as registered as the, the on the microphone now? Yeah, that's coming through. Mark
1: Steele is an award-winning writer, comedian and broadcaster, perhaps best known for his critically acclaimed BBC Radio 4 show, Mark Steele's In Town. Mark presented the BAFTA-nominated Mark Steele Lectures for BBC Two and is a regular on BBC One's Have I Got News for You and BBC Radio 4's The News Quiz. He has written several acclaimed books, including Reasons to Be Cheerful and What's Going On, and as a regular broadsheet columnist has been awarded Columnist of the Year. He was adopted at 10 days old and has documented his early life, adoption and quest to find his birth parents in his hit show audiobook, Who Do You Think I Am? Mark is also the host of the hit podcast, What the Fuck is Going On?, and is currently touring his show An Evening and a Little Bit of Morning with Mark Steele, which I can vouch having seen it is well worth a ticket. He also performs stand-up in French and, as if that's not enough, is an accomplished pianist. Mark and I talked about comedy, music, kids, jokes, nostalgia, South London, showbiz scandals, drugs dictionary corner, Jim will fix it, and last but not least, the incredible story of his adoption and birth parents, which comes in about halfway through our chat. But I started by asking Mark what it's like doing his podcast with his son, fellow stand-up Elliot Steele, as a regular guest.
0: This was absolutely on the podcast not long ago. He said, um, he was talking about class A drugs, and he told me once that he'd done acid once, and I thought, okay. And and I never did anything like, anything like that. i that. never done anything like that. And he said one day um, on the podcast, yeah, he said then, oh, no, I did it a few times. He said, do you remember a day when I came and sat next to you on the settee and the, you were watching the cricket, and you were, you'd thought, wow, Elliot's really concentrating hard on the cricket today. You know, I'd just done a tab of acid in Crystal Palace Park. <laughs> That's and lovely,
1: would- though. That's your two big loves, cricket and your son, in the same room, focused. He did it for you.
0: <laughs> so it would seem.
1: <laughs> did you, um, I mean, I'm sure anyone listening knows that your son is in stand-up and a very good stand-up to boot. Is it? What's it like then having your your kid in the same business as you?
0: It's some... uh, Well, there's obviously... Obviously, it crops up from time. We had a sort of quite a, a discussion. It wasn't not in any way was it unpleasant, but we did have quite a. We do sometimes have a disagreement about. Right, I've got a bit in my show. Right, where, where I mention this because I sort of talk about how when I started in stand up. or no, not long before I started. Sorry, let me start this again. Because when I was when I was very young and I was watched comics on the telly, they were the old style comics before the what we know as comedy came about in and stuff. So it was just sort of Tommy Coopers and people like that and people telling jokes. And that was the criteria for a comic. You just told jokes. And then I would do a whole bit of me show about how they would then finish on a on a song (laughs) so they would they would have to go fly me to the moon and let me play among the stars fella goes to the doctors he says i've got a (laughs) lettuce stuck up (laughs) my ass the doctor has a feel boot. he says i've got bad news it's only the tip of the iceberg (laughs) let me know what spring is like in jupiter and mars right So, so uh i've got a whole bit about that and then and this is, I think this is interesting about cultural changes because this happens in any cultural change. So that was smashed really over in the 80s, first of all by Alexi Sale and then lots of other people like that. And all of that stuff where people just came on and told traditional jokes, that then became replaced by the sort of comedy we know now as comedy where people talk about stuff. Might not be anything particularly, you know. Uh, philosophical but they come on and talk about it. it might be just talk about stuff like these are the people who live in my area whatever but it was a very different style of, of comedy but what I think people of my generation have, have kept from that old bunch of comics is that it was a a show and you you have to be like do jokes all the time so I've got, well, I've sort of I quite often sit here with Ellie yeah you know, oh, there's this amazing guy from Boston or something, uh, or from uh, Los Angeles or something, and he's done a special on HBO or on Netflix or something. Uh, and I see her and watch it, and there's a guy there sat in a stall in a sort of little comedy club, going, "So the American industrial military complex now has achieved a hegemony and which it has been seen to be in." invidious to the uh to the collective thought process of that and after about 20 minutes i go a joke wouldn't go amiss would it <laughs> at some point and- you think that's
1: the equivalent of us <laughs> saying oh they don't write songs like they used to yes <laughs> it, it must, yeah, be, it mustn't must it? be mustn't it yeah it must be i do um do you, well you've still got um elliot living with you does he live with you with his girlfriend or does she just come and go
0: she comes and goes, but quite often she's here. Yeah, and there's a lot uh, to be
1: said for the having the youth in one's home. I think I did notice when my kids both left home, and there were just loads of kind of cultural references and music, mm. and I just sort of knew a bit what was going on. And whenever people would say things like oh, they don't write music like they used to, I used to think, oh, no, they do. I love a lot of the stuff yeah, my kids yeah, are yeah, listening yeah. to, but now I'm not exposed to it as much.
0: Oh right, I'm probably not, not seeking
1: it. Out. I might be. T- I might be. I might have leapfrogged you. I might be older than you in my outlook. What do you think?
0: Well, I I doubt that, Kelly. I very much doubt you're older than me in your outlook, but I think that it is possible to leapfrog 60 years in your outlook. It's quite possible. I get very frustrated when I hear people my age talk about the majesty of punk or something because I think that that is – it was – you know, it played a role, but that, that was – Two thousand years ago, uh, and if you're not keeping up with what there is now, oh, they don't, These days, with kids, they don't have stuff like the Clash. Well, they don't, but they have. You know, anyone who's seen Dave do that song "Black" uh, or you know Stormzy uh, doing "Vassy Bop" or something. I mean, I think that's more. I think it's more rebellious. It's more thoughtful. It's more musical, in, in any way than anything or pretty much anything that, that the sort of punk generation revered, and equally
1: it, good social commentary as well. I was listening to yeah. Loyal Karner with my daughter in Mallorca last week as we mm-hmm. jetted around the island. And It's a bit ironic, really. We're hearing about social injustice and we're hearing around in a convertible on a girl's holiday. But hey-ho, life's full of contradictions. But I did think that lots of the lyrics, lots of his lyrics are amazing, you know, and absolutely as meaningful as anything that we were getting riled up by in the 70s and 80s. Yeah.
0: Loyal Carnal's a sweetheart as well, isn't he? I mean, you take, you'd, you'd be very happy for you... Your daughter to be going out with Loyal Carner.
1: I know, no, I absolutely would. Well, if you can make that happen, I'd I'd really appreciate that for, for a variety. of <laughs> I don't reasons. know. He's
0: South, he's Lewisham, I believe, isn't he? So yeah, uh, so you look
1: far away. Huh? You probably all know each other in South London. Do you all go yeah, down the yeah, boozer yeah. most? Yeah, nights? we do. We yeah. go
0: down. We play the piano. That's yeah. where Loyal learned how to do all the rapping. You oh, see. I imagine because so. His, fir- yeah. his first rap was in the boozer while doing we the piano, and his first rap went, "Can we have your glasses, please?" <laughs> and then he he did various um various rhymes with that. And that's He's got a whole thing
1: about what he learned at the knee of Mark Steele, which I think is what's put you on the map, isn't it?
0: Yeah, very much so. Yeah, that's why I can walk around. I can go anywhere about South London, all the different bits, all your Wandsworth and your, and your Catford.
1: It's seamless, isn't it? Seamless <laughs> for you. I did. I was I've said to you before, I think I'm quite um, agnostic about the North South divide unusually because right. I did live in South for a while. Obviously I got out when I when the money came in. No, I didn't. I just <laughs> Which happened. bits of the
0: south did you live in kind of?
1: I've lived in well, I went to Goldsmiths, so I lived in mm-hmm. New Cross. then I mm. lived in Lewisham, then mm. I lived in Peckham, uh, and then I for the longest time lived just off Cold Harbor Lane, but at the Brixton end. Um, and that was not long after the Brixton riots. It was It was quite wow. rough. I used to take my life in my hands getting my weed in those days. I mean, it was obviously I personally. Oh, on the corner, on the yeah. corner of
0: Brixton High Street and Cold yeah. Arbor Lake, yeah. on that corner. Yeah. Where, oh, my God. You'd get out of the tube there, turn left about 30 yards, and there would be about eight people, wouldn't there?
1: All ton- well, I used skunk to go, weed, um,
0: yeah. Skunk a one, way a one, skunk weed.
1: And there I was a nice girl from Dorset.
0: Yeah. Do you get the same in Dorchester?
1: Uh, well, I don't live near Dorchester. I don't know. But you do know, I'm sure you do, from your in-town research, that lots of those places, mm. there's a hell of a lot of drug use yeah. per capita. There's, like, there like isn't a lot to do. You know, I was a teenager in Dorset and then Wiltshire. And if you're not into kind of snogging drugs, bands. And even the bands, you know, one every six weeks. I mean, you've really got to be creative. So drugs tend to make quite an appearance for, you know, us country kids.
0: And you were Shaftesbury, would not it?
1: Just outside Shaftesbury, yeah. Just between Mm. Shaftesbury and Gillingham. Yeah. And there was a lot of... I don't know many people, and also mushrooms because you could grow them and you know, we were and get them <laughs> reap what you sowed. or well, not what you sowed, what you found really. Foraging. We were foraging, we were urchins, foraging for good trips. It was a hard to Oh, childhood. But it sounds
0: so romantic. Doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, compared to sort of when I was 17 and it was just going around some scuzzy sort of blokes house and that and he'd be like oh i've just got up and it's six in the afternoon no, we had exactly
1: that they were just right. country boys in you know council flats in the country it wasn't all you know we weren't all sort of hanging around blenheim palace
0: uh, right. with our
1: you know smoking weed and beautiful but ceramic pipes
0: but foraging for drugs though and because there was a um there would there'd be these sort of country programs. There was a bloke called Jack Hargreaves who used to be on the telly when I was a kid. And uh, Jack, ha- I know him because there was a program called How. And I used to really like Fred Dinage on there. He went on to be a local TV. Yes, presenter. I remember him. Do you remember him? Of course Fred Dynage. I do. And yeah. he was funny, because he would go, how do you do something? How do you pack a, balance a pack of cards onto a you know the back of a cat or something? And it'd all go wrong, and he'd go, oh, blimey, and he'd you <laughs> know, end up putting his foot in a bucket of bloody custard or something, and I just thought it was hilarious. And then Jack Hargreaves would come on, and his one would be, how do you... Oh, no. No, I think he were Yorkshire. Oh, no. I'll tell you a story about it. Right. So, Jack Algridge would be, how do you uh, get something? How do you use a float for a, a fresh water, if you've got no floats, for something to ca- catch a mackerel and it will be some boring countryside thing? Oh, Jesus. It's the boring, bloody. How do you whittle a bloody thing using only a toad and a bloody, you know, toad? How do you how do you get a turtle to something? Oh, no, not that interesting. How do you something lasso a kestrel? I don't know. So it'd be a, so that no, that would be more interesting.
1: I, I could tell you a few things about lassoing a kestrel, but that's how do you story. lasso a no, kestrel? No, I don't really know. I just I've just been hanging out with a falconer, as you know. Mm. But you, mm. for, I, d- I was going to ask you about your influences. I didn't think Fred didn't. Oh no, was I'm, on be a, there, I'm on I'm yeah, on a roll with Jack yeah. Argreaves. Yeah,
0: Jack. So Jack Argreaves. I'm thinking that how much better it would have been if he'd gone. How do you find mushrooms that get you off your tits in the middle of a fit and, dis- and uh, distinguish them from the ones that give you uh, severe appendicitis? <laughs> Try and look for these little beauties here. Oh, the li- now don't get the ones with the little blue dots. Just oh, just there we go. Lovely. I'll be I'll be thinking me mother's a pelican before the afternoon's out. That would be so much better. Now, my Jackie Argus story. So the, the guy who. Should I name him? Yes. So the guy who was, I was on a have I got news for you a few times, and the guy who was um producer, a very nice man, who himself is from Yorkshire, told me once we got talking about Jack Hargreaves, that Jack Hargreaves pretended to be from the countryside in Yorkshire, and he actually wasn't at all. He was from a big town and it was all made up. He was nothing to do with the countryside. And uh, they even did a programme about him, Jack Hargreaves' upbringing, where he pretended to be from this village that he never lived in at all.
1: What a hustle. That's like the 70s answer to the Tinder swindler, isn't it?
0: Yeah, worse than the Tinder swindler. Yeah. That's like I mean, those... at least the Tinder Swindler only swindled half a dozen people. This was swindling. And they the were only
1: women, so who cares?
0: <laughs> well, you know, the nation includes women, Kelly, and there's millions of women who would have looked at Jack Hargreaves and thought, look at that lovely, lovely yes. man who spends all his day whittling and lassoing kestrels and searching for psilocybin rush mushrooms. And in fact, he was living in a two-bedroom apartment in Camden.
1: Oh, this is all we need to know about the cads, the <laughs> patriarchal cads that have always enjoyed such privilege. It's like those women were sort of binding their breasts and putting on suits, weren't they, in the 50s and 60s to infiltrate male boardrooms and try and yeah. effect some kind of change. And mm. you've got some bloke pretending he's from Yorkshire and he knows how to he knows how to whittle. I think that shows our <laughs> respective gender struggles, doesn't it? What a frisk. (laughs) Frivolous hustle. (laughs) You silly people.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll take your point.
1: But um, I didn't really mean to come down <laughs> on all men. But please stay for the rest of the podcast. You're very welcome. We have the idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, here. I know. I'm, right. not
0: saying, I'm not saying that, you know, it, that the revelations of Jack Hargreaves amount to anything like a uh, Harvey Weinstein moment. But I think they all add to the general air of deceit that we've been putting up with.
1: Yeah, definitely. I completely agree. And did you, Um. well, it's, it's, it was like when we found out about Frank Buff doing coke, wasn't it?
0: Oh, what a moment that was. That was a big See, moment. See, the younger generation don't have that sort of thing because it's just expected. Nowadays, you just expect. If they said, oh, the presenter of CBeebies uh, actually lives in a, in a commune with a b- bunch of crack addicts, people would go, all right. But in those days, you had to be absolutely pristine. And Frank Boff was the epitome of of 1950s English gentility. And then he turned out to be doing coke with prostitutes who were smearing lipstick over him while he was wearing suspenders.
1: It was a lot to take in, wasn't it? I mean, for him and for us.
0: I'm not sure I've ever got over it.
1: Did he, so I can't, he obviously fell from grace, I think it's fair to say, but did he ever work again after that? I can't remember. Yes, he went
0: on to Sky News, I believe.
1: Whereas Angus Deaton got sort of cancelled for similar, didn't he?
0: Yeah, yeah. He's on the odd thing, isn't he? But yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah, you're right. There is still a... uh, prorience is that a word
1: yeah i think that's a word hmm. i think you're probably a better wordsmith than me so no, i wouldn't I get, rely say, entirely on my thesaurus brain but we can between I, us we'll probably get most of the words
0: i think prurience but i might be wrong about that prorience might mean a it, you know it might be a particular brand of custard i don't know
1: my mum and dad think- will be listening and my mum's is is a walking thesaurus so i'll be sure to hear i'll let you know what the verdict is from the beaten household
0: I, thank you. I was watching Justin Morehouse, very lovely man, a very funny comic, and he was on Countdown last week. He was in, in Dictionary Corner.
1: I've just recorded some of those, so you'll have the joy of watching Had me you? do those. Soon. Yeah, just did a week in Dictionary Corner. Oh my god. Me and Susie Dent are the best of friends now. We had so much in common. Single mums in our fifties, far too hot because of lack of HRT and menopausal unfriendly conditions. It was oh, what, stuff, hot, you mean flash- very hot in the studio. Yeah. <laughs> hot we were than, very hot. But we were still
0: clever. Well within the modern the modern yeah. definition of hot.
1: Yes. Well hopefully we wouldn't be for us to say about the modern definition. That would be for others to comment. But yes, <laughs> I did it and I loved it. I would like to do it every week.
0: I, I I cannot tell you how impressed I am with that, Kelly.
1: Really? Yeah. Is that the most impressive thing you've heard today,
0: by a, a distance.
1: It's only the morning, though, isn't it? Or just the
0: afternoon? But nothing. No one's got That's not. You know, where am I going to go this afternoon to hear anything?
1: I more know. Amazing? Don't rule yeah. it out. Stand open and curious. I think so things could go on from there. But you were saying, I. It's I the decide. day as
0: we recorded recording this on the day of the World Snooker Final, and. Um, Yesterday, you'd have been competing with Mark Selby getting a 147 in the final, but uh, yeah, but today you've absolutely smashed it
1: amazing. Oh, well, that's us done here, I think. I feel good now, but I hijacked your story about Justin Moorehouse with a. Well, I, egotistical push. See, I,
0: I think I think that there's something about one of the things about being my age that I think I that I like is that I come from a time when television and travel for example just two things off the top of my head were so impressive so i remember for if anybody knew anybody who knew anybody who had been on the television when i was a kid yeah the town stopped there was uh ask the family by robert robin robert robertson <laughs> do, do you remember Of course, that? i
1: remember yeah <laughs> It was. i you the, by pretending we're exactly the same age, but we are of a similar vintage. <laughs> well, I'm going to give you that. Yeah. So
0: Robert Robertson, it was so English and of the type. Ah, would that it were, Mrs. Tidmarsh, Would that it were. I'm afraid uh, that uh, if the if the first man had set off in a stagecoach four miles from Swindon, while the, his his brother came from the other side at 30 miles an hour and something, then it would be they would both arrive at the same time. Now, it, all that, it was so, so utterly wonderfully English. So, one year on Ask the Family, there was a family on called the Walkers, and they were from nearby Dartford, which was the big city for us. And you got the 423 or the 477 to get there. And the whole town stopped. If you was to ask, when did all of Swanley stop for the television over a 15-year period from 1965 to 1980, the moon landing would be a distant second First would be when the Walkers got to the final of Ask the Family. It was a massive thing to be on television. I can feel
1: the excitement of that. That never happened in any of the places I live. By the way, do you remember your home phone number? Your first home phone number? Swanee six two eight zero one. I knew you would. swanborn three nine six.
0: I want to get now your answers.
1: Yeah, that was a small exactly. That was a small. I think someone
0: will. Hello, it's the first time anybody's rung here for its 1973. <laughs> you see,
1: you've got the wrong accent though, because mine was uh, that was Buckinghamshire where I was born. So, yeah, Counties, yeah. And yeah, you wouldn't have done Swanbourne on your radio show. It is a very tiny place. Um, did the Jim, I got on Jim will fix it, but I didn't, I was trying to, get, I know. Right.
0: No, no, yeah. Stop and pause there. You can't just run on from that.
1: Well, I was going to, it's not, it's going to be a disappointment now because I'm going to, I was very strategic. Even as a young person, and was all about, you know, all about the brand. And I really wanted to get on Jim or fix it. And I kept sending off letters, and it went from sort of, I'd like to go in a rocket into space to, I'd like to fly (laughs) in the chitty chitty bang bang car and then I started realizing I started watching more and thinking oh I think it's more like I'd like to be pushed around a supermarket in a trolley that's more the sort of you know more the sort of budget that you've got so I started reining it in thinking getting more and more strategic I remember my dad would walk with me to the post box which was quite a long way away because we lived in Swanbourne, which was tiny and then there was one post box so we'd walk through the village and post it and, and anyway I couldn't get on and I and in the end I just wrote a letter saying I'd just like my letter read out which obviously was a played a blinder because he did read it out. But I was gutted at the time. This was about, I don't know, seventy eight, something like that. Right. So I was eight or nine, and I was mm. so upset that he didn't invite me into the studio to give me a badge. Mm. And of course, now, I think the universe was smiling very kindly mm. on me because, I mean, I was a very fat, ugly kid. I don't know if you're no, interested. You no Stop it. But um, but yeah. I- well, there you
0: are. You know, that's that's like you know the famous old. There's a famous old Chinese proverb that goes on indefinitely, isn't there? Is about it
1: about it? Jimmy Savile? I didn't know they had. Well, one it could that. be
0: written about that very, very incident because the Chinese proverb is that the uh, there is a, a man in a province somewhere in the rural area and his son uh falls over and breaks his leg for some reason and the neighbors all say it is such very very bad luck that your son has broken his leg and the chinese man says it is too early to know whether it is bad luck and the next day these warriors come by and they are taking all the able-bodied men off to war but because his son's got a broken leg they don't take him so the neighbors say it is very good luck that the warriors have come by and not taken your son because he has a broken leg. And they, he says, well, it's too early to tell. And every day something happens that makes the initial story either – you don't know whether it's luck or not. So at the time, you thought, what terrible, terrible luck. It isn't fair. It, But you weren't to know that you were actually dodging one of the 20th century's great bullets.
1: Yeah. Oh, I like the way you've chi- you've tied in Chinese – Proverbs mm. with a massive sex scandal. Industrial no one's ever done that on this. No one's ever done yeah. that on this podcast before. So this mm. is a big this is a big moment this end as well today. Mm. Did you um did you ever get on the telly then when it was not I know you do a fair bit on the telly now, but I mean you would at least you were doing the telly when it was still quite a big thing to do. I feel like I've only just got into doing telly when no one gives a shit and I get more Followers from my cat falling off a wall looking at a urban fox that I get from my best bit of life at the Apollo. It's very depressing.
0: Well, that, yeah, it's, yeah, it's quite sobering, isn't it? It's so, so different to how it was. It was so exciting. To being on the telly was such a have you been on telly? Was such a massive, I mean, everyone's been on telly now, haven't they? Yeah. I mean, if you probably, if I popped up the road here and went into the laundrette, and said, "Have you been on telly?" She'd probably go, "Oh, yes, I've done. A, I've done four series on on um, on Dave of conversations, conversations by a tumble dryer." Yeah,
1: and she'd probably <laughs> find it easier to get a Radio <laughs> Four show than I'm finding. Yeah, it To would. be fair, and yeah. now
0: and now on Radio Four, it's service wash. There with you go. The-
1: <laughs> With- yeah. In fact, I might <laughs> come in with T- you and see if she wants Tina to double Bradbury up on a proposal. From
0: Crystal Palace Launderette.
1: Hello, dear. <laughs> Today we're
0: doing all the sheets.
1: I'd listen to that though. I love just people watching. Then the more there's just an absolutely uncurated way to listen to conversations I'm not supposed to hear, the happier I am.
0: Yes. Well, a lot of that's uh, I mean because people say you have know, heard this, you know, when you do comedy, people go, Oh, it writes itself, which it rarely does. But sometimes the in-town show writes itself. So uh uh, this wasn't actually for one of the radio shows but uh, nonetheless, I just thought, this is all I heard, and I've all, I don't have to change any of it, was Western Supermare on New Year's Day and two, uh, hardly anyone about, because New Year's Day in the morning and there's a newsagent and two young women about 19, and I went in there and one just said to the other then right on the stroke of midnight as the fireworks went off, he proposed, I said you've got to get divorced first, you fucking muppet <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's brought my chest infection back that's very
0: good <laughs> I do sometimes it's just sometimes literally just copying what people say uh, last year we did in the Isles of Scilly. uh I didn't actually right so a bloke told me this right the Isles of Sea, which I loved and I had uh, about four days out there and it was just delightful and um 2000 people dotted about on five islands, 40 miles on a boat from Penzance. So, right, proper remote, and the sea dominates. And if the boat doesn't come, then you go without. And the boat doesn't come on a Sunday. It doesn't come all winter, in fact, or once a week, I think. But in the uh, even in the summer, on a Sunday it doesn't come. So you go without stuff. So there's no Sunday papers. And a bloke told me that he was in the newsagent, and there was a holidaymaker in front of him in the newsagent. And the holidaymaker said to the newsagent, uh, "I'll have a, a daily paper, please." And the newsagent went, "Do you want today's or yesterday's?" He said, "Today's." He said, "Boy, you'll have to come back tomorrow." <laughs> I mean that's that is a perfect joke. Yeah, it real, is perfect. In real life, isn't it? Yeah,
1: it is perfect. We can't really have a conversation about um things being diametrically opposed from your childhood and yourself as to who you've become um without mentioning the revelation about your dad, your mm-hmm biological dad which lots of people will know because um who do you think i am was a show then a radio show as well as being yeah. a live show and then it was also it's also an audio book isn't it from it's a couple of years ago yeah. mm. so and we'll put links to all of this we can't put links to most of what you talked about in the first half of the podcast in because it was things pre dinosaurs people on television who yeah. before there were things on youtube what about the
0: bit about so- uh about crack dealing yeah, and if you want if you want a link to some of the uh, to some of the crack dealers some of my daughter's friends
1: the- yeah all you need to do is be friends <laughs> with my daughter on facebook and get get on with her friends and then you're there um so that's easily done so yes your your revelations about uh, where from whence you hail biologically
0: well the audiobook is, is is about 8 hours i think and uh, that probably just about covers it but if I was to say it in a very short sort of uh, version, it, it I was adopted. I knew I was adopted and uh, I'm very grateful to my parents for not hiding that from me in any way because I think that's what mucks people up in the head when they sort of find out when they're 19 that Uncle Terry is their dad and that Auntie Phyllis is their mum and they you know um, that sort of thing. But I always knew I was adopted. I had no great interest in finding out who my natural parents were until I had a son of my own. And it occurred to me that, oh, my natural mum probably does remember having me, doesn't she? <laughs> and she might want to know, well, you know, she probably doesn't go, did I, did I have a son? She will know. So I spent ages trying to find find her but she wasn't easy she hadn't left a natural trail and it occurred to me that if she wanted me to find her it wouldn't have been this hard i did find her uh, there's a very wonderful woman called Ariel, I think has been on the telly and doing various things, tracing people's families for this sort of thing. She's absolutely wonderful, speaks with this absolutely wonderfully efficient sort of manner that everything about her is like, well, we're going to leave no stone unturned and we're going to jolly well find her. Don't you worry about that, Mark. We've got plenty of documentation here, plenty, I would think, that's quite sufficient to locate her. We don't have to follow all the rules, but there we are. Rules are only meant to be broken, as it were. Don't tell everybody. <laughs> and uh, two weeks later, she rang back and said, right, well, we found her and she's in Rimini, Rimini in Italy. And so. Uh, there was a, uh, there was a, there's a protocol these days uh, in which you write to someone in a way that they know that it is your offspring that is trying to contact you. So she sent that. I didn't send it. And she never replied. and then lovely Ariel contacted her by phone and she rang me back and said, well, I spoke to Frances. Frances is my natural mother there who had been who was living in Rimini. And she said, Well, I spoke to Frances, and um and straight away that made me feel extraordinary. Like so now this this woman who was my mother, who'd only ever been like a, a vague figure over the hill and far away, now was someone who lived and breathed and spoke on the phone from Rimini. And Ariel said it was most peculiar conversation. I can tell you this. Well, she was very angry that I'd rang. She kept saying, "How on earth did you get my my number? Don't you realise it was many years ago?" And uh, uh, that there was, no, that, and I kept saying, there's no blame, darling. There's absolutely no blame. Nobody's trying to castigate anybody for anything untoward or anything of that nature. It's just simply that, you know, he just wants to get in touch and to no reasons for that. And uh, she was very cross. She, and as much as I could do to put, she, she said at one point, as much as I could do to keep her on the phone at all. I kept thinking, keep her on the phone, rather like these people whose job it is to speak to someone who's taken everybody, hijacked everybody on an airplane. You see, you just have to try and keep them on the phone, keep them talking. And, uh, and she said, and then eventually, all of a sudden, she said, I would like to ask three questions. Like some Chinese proverb, I said the first question was, "Does he do for a living?" And I said, "Well, he's a comedian." And the second question is, "Does she have any children of his own?" And I said, "He has a son and has a daughter." And then the third question I can tell you this, Mark, in all the many years that I've been forming this role as an intermediary between people who have been somewhat lost as the, from their estranged from their original biological parentage, I've never heard in all those years such a question being asked at such a juncture. She said, "And what are his politics?" And I said, well, he's, he's somewhat perceived to be of the left. And she do? Oh. And then she suddenly said, and she blurted it out, as if it was the most important thing in the world that she had to, be, that had to be heard. She said, let me tell you the name of the father. And she said the name of the father. And then she said goodbye. So I then looked at the name of the father. I was married at the time. And my wife at the time was actually very... Uh, Diligent, really, and sort of much more interested in me than in sort of. I thought, oh, I don't know. Do I want to look him up? But it turned out that the chap who was my biological father was a man who was part of the Claremont set, so called cool because they played in the Claremont Club, which was Britain's first legal gambling club, set up by a man called John Aspinall, who had. Uh, views that were, I I don't really like throwing the word fascist around, but his views were really quite fascistic. He believed, for example, that uh, there were far too many people in the world and there should be a cull of around about a quarter of the world and that the poor and most useless people really were a drain upon the human species and so on. As such, he became absolutely obsessed with wild animals because he thought that they uh, developed systems that were superior to ours because they left their weak to die and things like that and we should adopt something similar and he uh, 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 quite extraordinary fashion would sometimes try to behave like a gorilla
1: know of this from my son and indeed the Aspinall Foundation there are there are still links to the animal world now as I'm sure you know yes yeah
0: Yes, and I'm sure much of their family are very fine people, I don't know. Mm,
1: Anyway, that's a story for another time, but back to your story.
0: Yes, well, he set up this gambling club and, of course, many of the people that came along to it were people that were gamblers, not only because they were gamblers, they weren't addicts or so, and they would play poker and backgammon in the Claremont Club in Mayfair. And they would play it partly because they loved the thrill of gambling and so on, but also they saw it as... A mission. They thought James Goldsmith was one of them, for example. People, older people might know of him. James Goldsmith was this massively wealthy person uh, who believed that. Britain had lost its way after the war, we'd given away our empire, we were naturally superior, we really should have fought to maintain this natural order, this sort of order that which Britain was at the top in which men were dominant and women should be subservient and it was sort of breaking all the rules and not doing women any favours to give them any power and so on, all of that sort of thing and uh, they saw themselves as pirates. They, they would use that word. We are pirates. Britain was, became great because the, there were people who just went out and took and proved their dominance and so on. And my natural father was part of that group. Now, he, his political views would not be the same as mine, but there's no indication that he was amongst the most, that, that he really was that bothered about the political side of it. He was really, by all accounts, keen on two things, making money, and having a laugh. And he sounds like he was very, very funny. And I've spoken to a couple of people who said, oh, he just loves telling jokes. Uh, In fact, I have a friend who met Charles Sarchi and mentioned my natural father's name to him, not saying why he was mentioning my natural father's main name to him he knew about my story and charles sarty said oh yeah i'll tell you his trouble always trying to be a comedian
1: that's interesting isn't it
0: mm. so uh that was my natural father he became the world backgammon champion and he was he wrote a book called backgammon for profit uh and it, uh, which of course i've got a copy of and as a result of that, when I sent off for it on Amazon, I then started getting lots of things saying, as you like this book, you might like these other books about backgammon. And I say in the show, actually, I'm sure there must be someone in their office going, well, his interest in backgammon didn't last long, did it?
1: If algorithms could talk. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, uh, yeah, so then, and then I met him. I wrote to him. He didn't answer. Uh, and then... I thought, the bloody pair of them, my parents, they're not – Jesus. So six months later, I thought, oh, I'll give it one more go, and I sent an email, and he replied. And it was uh, – I remember sort of going, that's not an email you just look at straight away, is it? Like something from – like a, a thing that comes from Eurostar or Marks and Spencer. What did you call you... it? What
1: was the title?
0: I can't remember. I think it was – I, th- I remember taking ages on composing my email to him because I thought I've put, this is one of the more peculiar letters, uh, emails that you're ever going to receive. There's no easy way to say this, but I'm your biological son. Uh, and then I think I put, cause I thought I know what he's going to be thinking he wants me money. Yeah. So I put, I'm not after anything. I don't think you owe me 140 trips to the seaside or any number of ice creams or anything like that. I just, I, I was quite careful. How I wrote it because I wanted to make it jokey. I, I didn't want anything off him. I just thought uh, as a, um, I put as a backgammon player, I'm sure you'll probably, t- you'll probably take quite a, quite a while before you make your next move. All that, you know, and, uh, he wrote me a, an absolutely lovely reply. Uh, to the email uh, in which he said that he remembered very well my natural mother he remembered very well her coming to him and saying i'm pregnant they just had a fling over a weekend in london and she she came he, he then arranged his father had connections and he spoke to his father about it and his father gave him some money and arranged for a trip to Harley Street, whereby she could arrange for a termination, even though it was before that was, strictly speaking, legal. And he sent that to me. Now, the reason I I like saying that is because when I then met him, he said, we arranged to meet about a year later. He was in London, and we met in this cafe. And by then, I made contact with my natural mother's family and so on. And not my actual mother, who didn't want to meet me, but their sisters. And so we met in this cafe, and there he was. It was so obviously him. And I had a hat on, as people all know me now, I usually wear a hat. And he said, uh, I said yeah, nice hat. I said, thanks. He said, uh, is, uh, is it necessary or just an affectation? <laughs> I thought, well, that's funny. It, no, I'm, sorry, I've mucked this up. His very opening line was, he said, I've got a lot of meetings today. This is the most awkward Excellent. Then he said that about the hat. And he said, like I said, the last I knew, I thought I'd arrange for a termination. And I said, well, I said, I'm in touch with France's family now. So if you like, I could try and arrange for them to give you the money back that they obviously <laughs> owe you. And it he would went, have
1: been a fair chunk of money
0: too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he went, huh? And I said, Joe, it's a better joke than her." And he went, yeah, you're right. And we sat down and I thought... This bloke's funny and I liked him. And uh, um, is oh god, his wife is a socialite who sort of um was arranged a, a sort of social evenings with George W. Bush and <laughs> he
1: stuff. made his money as a Wall Street trader.
0: He made his money as a Wall Street so trader. So, you're the,
1: you are the son of a capitalist, mm,
0: very much so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And did you? I mean, one of the things that people who love your stuff know is that you do have just a fabulous way of seeing the funny side of things. So rather than doing the British kind of harrumphing, you tend to go, I'll just go and sit on that bench over there and have a bit of a giggle about this, which is an incredible thing. If you could bottle that, that's probably about as big a superpower as anyone could wish for. And it's why people are so drawn to you, I think, and love listening to you and watching you. But So you obviously have that capacity, and I know your son, and he has that capacity. You both have a way of hearing something and seeing something and bottling it up and being funny, and that is not the way everybody's brains work. But how is that then? So to actually do what you've done with this story and live through that and your birth mother not wanting to see you and your birth father having that one meeting with you, and all of those things. And it's a brilliant show. And of course, there's endless funnies in it. But but is is there a part of you that d- does it generate kind of melon? Because I think I would also feel very melancholic, I'd feel lost, I would spend ages, sort of analysing everything. It, does that go on as well?
0: Well, there's one part of the story that makes me very angry. Uh I don't, I, I find it funny, because I think things are funny. And I think that's, you know, there's a sort of terrible thing, isn't there, sometimes about comics that, oh, comics are actually hiding something. There's something behind the the facade of what you do. Oh, you know, and you see these biopics of sort of – I saw the one about Tommy Cooper and stuff, and he was all – oh, and he was a big, drunk, and horrible mess behind the jokes. And, that. and I thought, no, but he was – Funny comics are funny, aren't they? You know, we kind when we go important out,
1: that they are, we have a yeah.
0: laugh. We do genuinely, we're not just having a laugh to hide the fact that we're actually all bloody, you know, uh, that we're actually miserable and would much rather be a, a cleaning drains. I mean, we it's it's a I don't know, anyway. Having said that, I would say two things. What well, uh, the other thing that means that I've not got in the state about it is my mum and dad were so honest about me being adopted when I was a kid. And that's a brilliant thing that they they don't And there you were never-
1: unconditionally loved by your adoptive mum and dad.
0: Well, I don't know about that. But I I was sort of. I but I was um I've actually I've forgotten this. I've been d- doing it a bit in the show that in the, when, this ha- when these when these soap operas, there's a big daft moment, isn't there? Where you're the child is six and you're sat down. Now then, darling, we've got something very important to tell you because you were chosen especially yes you were you're not like the other boys and girls whose parents have to keep them even if they hate the bastards you were chosen especially because you're adopted isn't that lovely and that was there was never that moment I just knew that I was adopted and it, therefore it never bothered me but the bit about it that makes me I cannot see how this could not make you melancholic or something react against it my natural mother was one of what is estimated to be and it'll be something like this half a million women between the ages of uh, between the years of 1950 and 1975 who were forced and I think you can use that word forced compelled maybe to give up their children to give up their babies purely because of the social pressures that you are some sort of... Uh, harried and fallen woman look at the state of you getting pregnant like that and the accounts of all these women are shockingly similar there were mother and baby homes in which these pregnant women would go to uh, up until the point when they Went into labour. They would work. They were seen as punishment for the most part. Uh, you were there really to be punished by the good Lord. There were uh, the the homes were either run by the Catholic Church. See, we know about that. They've got a very bad rap. philomena or all that. See, people think of this happening in Ireland or mm. Spain or something, but in Britain, either the Catholic Church or the Church of England or the Salvation Army, and these. Mother and baby homes were would host a woman who was in the latter stages of pregnancy. They would then go off when it was time. They would work scrubbing the floor and that sort of thing. Up until the point where they went into labor, they would then go to the hospital, give birth, and the baby would then be in the room with them for a few days until the adoptive parents come around and took it. And then the natural mother would be told, right, that's it. He's gone. And they would go home on the bus and be told best not to dwell on it. Just put it out of your mind. That's how that worked. And of course, I don't, you know, some of those women would have got over it better than others, but for a great many of them, their whole lives will have been blighted by that episode. And I don't know whether my, that's the case with my mother. She tried to, to she having agreed to give me up for adoption she then changed her mind immediately i was gone and for the next 11 months of my my life unbeknown to me because i was a baby she then tried to fight to get me back but a combination of her parents and social pressures and the social workers at the time called social welfare officers, doctors and so on. And the fact that it was hard, she could have claimed money because the welfare state was, was well underway by then, but nobody advised her about that. So she in the end, couldn't, couldn't, wouldn't have been able to maintain herself or me because no one would have supported her. So then she just, at some point must've gone bollocks to it then. And then she eventually, uh, fell in with an Italian man and moved to Rimini. Well, I went out to Rimini and met uh, friends after she died. They didn't know she'd ever had a baby. And I went over there and, all oh, right, two little stories. So I went to uh, I went out to Rimini just for the lockdown and met Antonella, Danella, my natural mother's sisters, put me in touch with her. They're sweethearts. They're really nice people. And a brother. And she... um they put me in touch with Antonella who was a friend of Francis out in Rimini and everything about Antonella is so beautifully Italiano. And so I met up with Antonella and she even has a little dog, a poodle called Clara Bella. What could be more Italian than that? And we would go into these, we went into a bar and she would tell the story. Everybody knew Francis. This is Francis boy. It's Filio figlio di Francis. It's figlio di Francis. And they would go oh, oh in this big italian way il e figlio di france de il so it was something like so io ci, sono gli something like that he's got france's eyes they would say so soldi glistezzi and uh and then oh and then they would look at me and i i, I would just be in a, amazement and it was very obviously astonishing very moving for them for me i was sort of on the outside i'm thinking well i i'm just looking at this as an outsider but at one point, my mum, who has never been the person I know as my mum, who's never been a person to talk about emotions very much, she rang, right? I answered the phone. Mum, right in the middle of all this, Italians, Sevilla di Frances, oh, bellissimo, bellissimo. And I said, oh, hello, mum. Where are you? That sounds noisy. I said, I'm in Italy, Rimini. What are you doing in Rimini? Where's that? Sorry, Italy, why? I said, I've come out. To all the people who knew Francis. Francis knew that Francis who you adopted me, mum. You remember you adopted me or oh, Francis? Oh yeah, Francis. I said, Yeah, well, I'm in Rimini where she moved to, and I'm with like all loads of people who she knew. And she went, What's the weather like?
1: <laughs> You're right. Sometimes comedy does write itself.
0: <laughs> My other little story from that <laughs> On the last night I was there, I was there three days. I went to an English pub they have in Rimini I think it's called the Rose and Crown. There was a post drop, I think Tony Hadley of Spandau Ballet had played there not long before. I went out there and I met Salvatore and a couple of other people who were uh, the sons and daughters of people who were friends of Francis. And it was a lovely, lovely evening drinking with them. And it was all jolly and fun. And then. Salvatore, the last thing as I was about to leave, he said, always with Frances. I love her. I love her. She's just so full of life and excitement and all that. He's, he spoke very good English, Salvatore. He said, but always with Frances, I think there is something make you angry. Make you angry, Frances. What is his life that has made you angry? And then I hear about the baby. And now I know what to make her angry. And uh, that was the fault of that. If you look for blame, the blame wasn't her parents. The blame wasn't this doctor, that social welfare officer. It was the system. It was a system that had been built up by human beings that had created a situation in which hundreds of thousands of women had to give away their babies in those circumstances. And uh, so, if you ask me there, am I melancholy? melancholic? Melancholic is, is what I am. But I don't think you could be human if that didn't make you a little bit cross.
1: It's interesting that you had the instinct to rail against social injustice from a relatively young age before knowing that one of the biggest social injustices of our times was so at the heart of your own story.
0: Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Um, Yeah. I do think as well when when people sort of, you hear people, and this happens on the left a lot, and these people I think are very uh, frustrating when they go, things are so bad now, it can't get any worse. Well, yes, it fucking can get a lot worse because things are better now. That couldn't happen. My daughter, when she was 20, exactly the same age as Francis was when she gave birth to me, my daughter, when she was 20, told me she was pregnant. No one suggested for the good of the family name, for the good of the neighborhood, you will have to give the Mm. baby away and pretend it didn't happen. Of course not. That's because millions of people have fought against that injustice over the years and have won. It doesn't mean everything's perfect, but things are better now than they were because people have resisted.
1: Though if you look at what's going on in the States at the moment, there's an alarming swing back to...
0: Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah. While David Bowie was number one, there were still women being compelled to behave in this way.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: While Jimmy Savile was on the television.
1: Good, Well, will let no-one say this episode hasn't had its share of levity. Namaste, motherfuckers! So uh, what would you pick? As your Namaste, motherfucking life-changing moment.
0: I changed my mind since you asked me this question. I've changed my mind so many times. I've even changed it a number of times during our conversation. I, I don't know. I suppose I was thinking like the obvious thing would be when I I came
1: on. What the fuck is going on? That was a big one, wasn't it for you?
0: That was a very big moment.
1: Yeah, but you may choose another.
0: I've got two left. Good. Another one was, um, I suppose, I was about 21. I'd heard about the comedy store. I'd gone and seen a show at the comedy store. I didn't quite know what was getting going on with it. I thought it was seedy, but exciting. It was famously in a room that was above a strip club uh, in Dean Street. You got a lift and went up like an old-fashioned lift, like you would imagine from Dickens' days. And I asked if I could be put down as having an open spot these days. There'd be a huge great queue for it, but not then. And I I did these awful, awful, appalling poems. And uh I went back a couple of weeks later, completely on my own. I was living in a squat at the time, and I just went up there, went in, did me five minutes. And it's got a few laughs, I suppose. And I felt like I was the king of the world. And I thought at that moment, I'm going to be able to do this. Well, if I look back on it now, it was probably absolute rubbish of the worst order. But at that moment, I thought I'm going to be all right doing this. So I suppose that was a really big moment is that the sort of thing you mean definitely yeah
1: so you were 21 when you did your first open spot Mm,
0: maybe 22 don't know something like that yeah um something like that so i I was working for uh what was i working for at the moment at that time london transport i had a job i cannot imagine any trade union in the history of the world would be strong enough to defend the continued existence of this job i did nothing i i got there was i used to sit in this office these documents would arrive from some part of the london transport network from neasden or something from neasden depot or something and for some reason right if neasden depot wanted i don't know a box of washing up liquid, then it would have to send a, a sheet of paper to us with the request on it. I would then copy 12 cartons of washing up liquid f- from the bit of paper they sent onto another bit of paper and then send it back to them and send one copy to the depot around the corner right next to the office. And then they would get their copy and come down and get the washing up liquid. I don't know why they couldn't just send it straight to the depot and then just come and get it. I don't know. But that was my job. So, so pointless, boring, and meaningless. And it and by about half an hour into the day, I'd finish for the day, and I would nothing to do.
1: Which is actually much but, worse than being busy, isn't yeah, it? People don't yeah. realize. Here's me saying people don't realize what it's like. Those NHS workers—they're busy. They should be grateful. No, they shouldn't be. But there is something shit about having a job. Yeah. where the absolute most soul destroying job I ever did. Um, and it was the same summer I started selling ice creams off an ice cream van to the army barracks of Salisbury Plain, which was much more exciting. Oh all right, but that, that yeah, but so. that, yeah, that, that you could have done with me as a guest on your podcast. I'd have had tales to tell.
0: My producer Carl was an ice cream man.
1: They, well, they, when yeah, we did Bedford, I, I which woman, has a big Italian. Other thing. than that, same.
0: Yeah, 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 but no. He, he, if you and him were to meet up, I bet you would end up talking for hours about flakes and things.
1: Well, there was a film. There was a film about a big ice cream. Do you know about this film? There was, a, ask him if he knows. There was a film about ice cream wars between two rival ice cream because it's it, it was a. Oh big yeah, in Glasgow. Yeah, big thing. Yeah. And, and my work, when I did it, the boss's daughter had the Mister Whippy van, which was first of all it was the Mister Whippy, so it had the Mister Whippies. I didn't have a Whippy machine. Second of all, she this was the absolute killer app. <laughs> she had the chime that was automated. She just pressed a button. I wound. I had RSI in my finger within about three days because I had to wind my chime. And without your chime, you're nothing. Yeah, mine was just one It Was the chime. I had to wind it. Without the chime, you're nothing out in the wilds of Salisbury Plain. And yeah, it was it was difficult. And she had the Whippy. Thing. they'd all come to me with my chime that nearly killed my fingers they'd be like can i have a mr whippy i'd be like no i don't have the whippy machine so yeah anyway um but the job i did before that job uh and that job was commission only which was tough on milk pops on salisbury plain um sometimes you got lucky and managed to flog a vionetta to an old lady who didn't have the money but you know um <laughs> But the um, I'm
0: fascinated by this is so much more interesting than anything I've said.
1: I I think not. um... It's
0: amazing. So you and and did you sometimes puncher the sort of you know because you're a little bit like it's a little bit like poor Rochdale up against Arsenal in the FA Cup. I don't know how uh, you know how we're supposed to compete with uh, them with their you know they we've got our whole team is worth less than their one. Than their goalkeeper. Well, That's in terms, t- how did
1: I take on the boss's daughter with her unnatural privilege and advantage? It was a good metaphor for life. I just mm. found a workaround, and they get they would give you a route, but it was pre-satnav, um, and so you sort of knew you were in. It was quite if you fucked up, it was you'd be like out on a tank track in the arse end of nowhere. Yeah, you didn't want to get this <laughs> wrong, as I discovered when I ended up. I actually capsized one of the, one of them in a on a ah! t- on a tank track um in the middle of nowhere. So I know that.
0: That's... Oh my god, an upside down ice cream van. Like, yeah, quite, and that was not upside down
1: on its side, and then a tank came by about an hour later, and they just put me back up. They'd seen it all before, I think. They just put it back the right way up. Helped me off the tank track, and I gave them a milk pop, and we went about our respective days. (laughs) But the, um, yeah, I used to just try and intercept the boss's daughter. So I would, if I got far enough ahead of her. She didn't know that I'd been, I got there so far ahead of her that she didn't know I'd already been. If you were only like 20 minutes ahead, she'd know because there'd be like rappers and evidence of...
0: So you were like a tracker, like like a Cherokee.
1: Yeah, when I watched The Chase, I'm like, you guys stop pissing around. I did this for real. Yeah, so I would just get, a, get ahead of the boss's daughter. It didn't last long though because then I started to make quite a bit of money and then the boss knew that, and then the boss's daughter was making less money and yeah, so I only had that job about, I don't know, two weeks. Put water two weeks.
0: Oh, brilliant. I want, to, yeah, I think I want to pursue that idea of it being like a Western.
1: Yeah, it was, it was good.
0: I can see from the mask, it's been Mr. <laughs> Whippy round these parts. <laughs> there will be fleet rappers. I say. they'd be <laughs> heading west through the salt plane up to Wilds. what's that thing called? The um the chemical thing where they, that's very secret. Port, uh,
1: Portland Down, Portland, is it? Yeah.
0: Portland, yeah, they've been wilds Portland down, they'd be gone. Yeah. yeah but it requires coming down from devices.
1: <laughs> is it Port Portland? People will be my dad'll be throwing his slippers at the bloody I was going to say the radio. He doesn't listen to this on the radio yet. He has a um, listening device.
0: Yeah, we did Port- quite a bit about that in the programme. Portland, uh,
1: Portman, I don't know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, what is your favourite joke?
0: So uh, when I got all sort of uh, lefty, when I was about 18, there was this uh, lovely old fella I used to go to who... who, who It was was fascinating for so many reasons. Uh, Tony Cliff, who many older people would would have known because he was sort of quite an influential figure on the left. He was a lovely, amazing genius of a man, really, from um, uh, Palestine as Jewish a person as you could meet, he was a sort of, uh, just everything about him just exuded this amazing Jewish humour and everything. Uh, And he used to sort of do all these talks and things, and I would love listening because he was funny, you know, and I've always just basically, I think that really if you're doing anything in public, if you're speaking or doing anything in public, you ought to be a little bit funny. I'd be a rule, shouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, don't, just be a bit funny if you're speaking at a wedding or a funeral whatever it is if you're doing a talk about astrophysics Stephen Orkin did jokes all the best people there's a bit in them that's funny and he was funny and he had a sense of mischief and of course sometimes you would get people who would be very some would go oh that was out of order what he did there but he told this one joke and I think the the whole of this joke is that all that stops us is our own minds all that stops us really taking over the world is our own minds and it sounds a bit dated now but he would often tell this joke and it was that there was a factory and they made cooling systems and an Arab sheikh came over to look at the calling systems. He was going to buy a lot of the calling systems, and so the manager's showing him round and saying, "Oh uh, yes, we, we make them here. This is where we make this sort of under the cast here, and then the sort of the, and then the you know, this, this another bit that's made here." If I show you through there, and the Arab sheikh's and all his regalia and stuff, and he's looking at it all, and he's quite interested. And then it's the uh, lunchtime. And so the hooter goes. Now younger people won't know about this, but there would be a hooter in a shipyard or something like that, and everybody would leave for lunch. And hundreds of people leave the factory, and the manager carries on showing him the Arab. The Arab sheik is now distracted and says, "I, I must, my, my friend, I must stop you. Your slaves are all escaping." Your slaves are all escaping. And the man just says, oh, don't, uh, 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 <laughs> don't, don't consider yourself that. That's absolutely fine. And then he carries on showing him round. And now if we look over here, we see the painting is done here. And this is where we check it. And the Arab sheik is just absolutely, can't believe what he's seen. And an hour later, the hooter goes for the end of lunch break. And everybody comes back in. And at the end, the manager says, uh, so are you going to buy a calling system? And the Arab Sheikh says, fuck the calling system. Get me a hundred of them hooters. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All that stops you is your own mind. Yeah. That's my favorite joke.
1: I love it. And that would be my if I were going to answer the last question, which is uh, what's a bit of life advice would you give anyone listening? I would say get out of your own way because I think we all can. Oh,
0: get out of your own way. Oh, but, God, yeah, I, What my, is your
1: your life advice?
0: For but I, in all seriousness, my life advice would be for God's sake, don't listen to me. <laughs>
1: Namaste, that was Mark Steele. We've put links to Mark's tour, podcast, and audiobook, Who Do You Think I Am, in the show notes. And he's doing Hackney Empire, if you're in London, I believe, next week. You'll be able to check that out. I think there's a couple of seats left for that. And that is it for this week. Thank you so, so much for listening. Please do remember to keep rating, reviewing, subscribing. You know what you're doing. And we will be back in your feed next Thursday, as always, when I will be talking to behavioural scientist, Dr. Grace Lawden. You
0: know, I think if we think about happiness, you usually are trying to get more pleasure, more purpose. And ideally, you get a balance of both.
1: Namaste, Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions, with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, Motherfuckers. Namaste, Motherfuckers! Pod People.